0: Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Another exciting episode. I don't know how exciting it is for you, for me. I'm pretty excited. i got all kinds of cool stuff going on. Not only will we be reading from Try Not to Die at Ghostland. My daughter will be reading Chapter 4. And I will read the death scene from last week. Those are a lot of fun. There was a group on Facebook, trying not to die at Ghostland. Readers are sharing their favorite deaths, how many times they died, all that kind of fun stuff. I still want to put together an app for that that can where everyone can track their deaths, what their favorite deaths were, you know, what percentage they survived, what location they're reading. I thought that'd be kind of cool to see people dying all around the world. Nah, I don't want to see people dying all around the world. I want to see people reading, trying to die all around the world and killing my characters, our characters, in those books. Again, something I could not do on my own. I'm pretty excited about it because, yeah, putting out book seven, I'm about to finish up back at Grandma's house. That one is going to be a much shorter book, probably only half the size of these other ones. I'm doing that one on my own, but pretty sad, pretty disturbing stuff. And after that, I will do the Dark Fairy Tale probably Super High. I think Dark Fairy Tale and Super High are going to be coming out on Kindle Bella before they come out in print. I'm not going to rush those as much. Part of the reason is I just had a great talk with an agent and she would like more. We, We talked about a series that I had pitched to her that she really liked. So I'm going to start working on one of those novels. I'm not sure if I'm doing it on my own or with someone else. So a small little break from Try Not to Die while I focus on that. The really cool thing about it too is I kind of feel like, do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? The thought of not taking advantage of a proposal being accepted by an agent, that would never have crossed my mind before, especially a good agent that I would want to work with. But just I have so many projects that it's difficult to consider, you know, what the right move is. Like, okay, do I do these and put off everything else for a little while or slow everything else down. And so a lot of trying to figure that out, but it would be really nice to sell something to a big publisher. But I, also with the agent, I talked about Frankfurt and my strategy going in that she'd be able to help with any foreign rights if I could land any offers. So now I am looking at that. One of the things I was doing this week was fixing up my Frankfurt, the mesa directory so my listing in there so i had that kind of stuff next week i'll be looking for different publishers that i want to talk with pitch my ideas to the trying to die especially i want to sell those for and right so that is the goal i think it's a very marketable project especially if it's done right by a publisher with money unlike me i can only do so much i'm doing so many different small things that it's really hard to spend time doing much of anything like Try not to die at Ghostland. I shit. I don't even know the last time I posted. I post on social media every once in a while, but because of how many books there are, and if I'm even posting on a book, like who knows how many times I'm actually sharing that kind of stuff. So I don't do a great job with that. I just got a lot of shit going on. Anytime that you guys are able to do that for me, I sincerely appreciate it. It's super cool having readers who enjoy my work that are looking forward to my work and my co-authors' work. So. Thank you guys for that. But yeah, sharing the podcast, sharing reviews, sharing any kind of recommendation is super awesome and always much appreciated. All right, now on to jiu-jitsu. I was all pumped about it last week. I went to open mat on Sunday and that was awesome. Got a lot of roles in, felt really good, really strong. I signed up for ADCC. I registered, did all that. I was proud of myself. My wife and I each had a private lesson with a brown belt from 10th Planet Las Vegas. We'd just seen him compete the night before. A subversive Jordan. That was awesome. Learned so much in such a short amount of time. So super cool. Excited about that. The next night, one of our teammates who was going to compete, she really injured her knee in practice. And another person that was going to compete on the team had a bad knee and someone else was hurt. So the team decided to cancel. So I am not going. If it was local, I think I would still go, but I'd have to fly to Scottsdale, which I really don't care to do and be in that heat and just spend all that time. So I'd rather do that closer to home, I'd rather do it with the team. So since they are not doing it, I am just going to have to figure out whether or not I can get money back or just put it to the next competition, the next ADCC open. I also had acupuncture this week to work on. And I just focus on my knees because my knees are a wreck. But also had a good talk with my surgeon who was telling me, he's like, you know what? He's like, if you're able to compete, if you're able to train, if you're able to do all these things and you're just having to deal with the pain, he's like, I suggest you just do it. He's like, surgery will be for when you can't do the things that you want. So I really liked his approach. I'm still going to go and try to do the stem cells and other things to heal, but the knee does seem to be getting a little bit stronger. Sure. I might blow it out on the way but that's a risk I'm willing to take. And then I'll do the surgery because he said it's a long recovery. ACL is torn and the meniscus is all messed up. He said we could go in and remove some of the meniscus, but even that would be like three weeks off and I don't see the point. And he didn't see the point either fixing my knee because my hip is in such bad shape. And then he said there's also a problem if I fix my hip first, the knee is going to be a problem for rehab and I shouldn't do both at the same time. So we'll see. Hopefully I'll never get to that point. Uh, maybe I will be dead before then. Trying not to die before a fucking hip replacement, right? I wasn't sure what I wanted to talk about besides Ain't No Messiah Being Free. So I asked the Dark and Disturbing Fearfield Fiction Group what I should talk about today. I think they had a couple... Qu- well, I know they had a couple questions. Here I am pretending like I haven't already read this shit. I just forgot what they were. I wasn't really paying close attention. But we shall check it out now. Awesome. We have three questions. The first one is from Emily. So, which Try to Die in Ghostland Death Scene was the hardest to write? And which was the funniest? Hmm. Well, I didn't write all that many of the death scenes. I helped Duncan create them, but he really did the right. I can't take credit for much of this book. Which ones were super disturbing? Man, I don't know. One that, One thing that just bothered me quite a bit was the killing of the little baby little baby michelle can't believe duncan forced me to do that um i didn't really fight him so that was a little bit hard wasn't sure about that but it wasn't like too crazy or anything but that wasn't a big deal i don't know there were a lot of cool ones i really love what he did with the characters of the magician i don't i forget his name and his assistant so that one was a lot of fun one that I talked about on the podcast when I first came up with it, pulling Lucy up in the air and ripping out her hair. I thought that was a lot of fun. So those were some of the ones I kind of remember, but man, it sucks because you know, so much of that is already gone so much. Of it is already forgotten. If I had done more of the writing, maybe I'd be remembering, but it's like, okay, well I've been thinking all, you know, there's been death deaths since then, all those deaths. Then there have been, Starting to think of all the dark fairy tale deaths, and some of those are so fucking brutal. That's part of the reason I'm just taking a little break on it. And then I've been doing the deaths for back at grandma's house. So I was like, okay, what was it for fucking Ghostland? What were the ones in Wizard's Tower? What so definitely, but those are some of the ones that stick with me. I think reading through it, reading through the testings is gonna be a lot of fun. That will spark my memory. And we have to remember. I'm a 50-year-old stoner with a lot of memory loss from getting hit in the head, parting, all those terrible decisions. All right, Alvin, Alvin, Alvin. Are there any unique tools or techniques used to keep track of the story paths and outcomes in the Try Not to Die books? Hmm tools or techniques I use to keep track of the story pass and outcomes? Not really, man. On the very first trying to Die, not at grandma's house, but the one that was the basis or, or the precursor to grandma's house, it was at a grandma's house, but had nothing to do with the story. For that one, it was gonna be interconnecting past. It was gonna be all over the place. So I drew this giant map and had to really lay it out. That one was incredibly complicated so I stopped that. But really, all I do now, I break everything down into I have a big sheet of paper and I break it down into about 24 squares or so. I know there's probably going to be somewhere between like 20 to 26 different chapters for the try not to dies. And then I realize, okay, well, that chunk is probably going to be the start. What happens in those first four blocks? And then just write them in. And then the same thing for you know, the the finale is going to be the last, probably three to four blocks what happens there and then fill out the rest and then just for keeping track of the deaths I I like to keep them separate I like to keep the main story in one place and you know list what the deaths are for the scenes but then do the deaths somewhere else and do them later I think before I used to I didn't really have a preference on it whether or not we hit the death scenes as we were writing because I was like well you don't want to lose it if you have it but I found it's better just to write the whole story then you can find the the decisions you'll know the destinies better. You'll know the whole story better. So, that is what I recommend to my co-authors. Like Alvin, his book is going to be awesome. All right, we got Don Young, prepper bug out bag question. What do you have in your vehicle that would help if you broke down and needed to survive a horror movie all on your own scenario? Hmm, what do I have in my car? I guess I could go out and look, but I probably don't have shit. I probably have a bunch of trash. I could throw trash at people. Enough to light a fire with. Keep me warm for a night. What else is in my car? I don't know. Probably something in the back. Probably something metal. Something I could use to bash someone's head in. I'd like to do that. I have a couple books in there. Maybe I could barter those for some liquor and cannabis. There might be some cannabis. No, there's no cannabis in there. I wouldn't have cannabis in my car. But yeah, no weapons. There might be money. I could probably buy something if money's still useful. But yeah, I think I'm going to have to try to take someone else's vehicle, possibly their life. Hopefully they're a bad person. Hopefully they had it coming. I wouldn't want to hurt an innocent person. But then again, odds are they already have a gun and they shoot me because they were better prepared, unlike myself. All right, Don, thank you for your question. Sorry, I don't have a better answer. All right, guys, before we go, Ain't No Messiah, remember, that is free on Kindle Unlimited. I read Lisa's review of it the other day. Thought that was awesome. Let her know how much I appreciated it. But I thought it'd be fun to read. Oh, wow. We don't have a one-star review. I thought this thing for sure would have a one-star review. It's probably had a lot of people that did not finish, but which is cool. So let's go with the two-star reviews. I think this is a good way to tell you what the book is about. Because I don't want you reading it if it's something that would offend you. For sure. Don't want that. All right. Teresa is started as a good idea this type of book is normally right up my alley, but I give the story to be a long and winding road too winding for me. The story starts out interestingly enough, but doesn't paint a clear enough picture. Then it skips around and around with bits of information. I'm assuming to keep you hooked, but it bored me. It took way too long to get through this book. I like the idea, the story map, just not the way the story was told. So yeah, that's a hundred percent legitimate. That's you know, while writing, that's something I definitely have to take a look at with, with, with Brightside, with this, like all the different flashbacks. How long do I want to take? Is my all over the place? Is it interesting? Is it not? So I completely get that. All right. Here's another one. This is a two-star review by C. All right. So this was weird. A ton of violence and death, sex and manipulation. I get that Joshua was to be the second coming of Christ. Great but I'm so confused when it comes to certain things. Why so much sex? Who was Joshua's real mother? Where the hell did his brother go? Who was his dad? Honestly, I thought about giving up 34% of the way through the book, but decided to see it through. I'm not happy with the way it ended and more likely won't be picking up the second one anytime soon. Again, I get it. All right, last one. Michelle, not my cup of tea. I had a hard time getting into the book. It has so many unneeded branch offs and plot turns that I had a difficult time staying attentive to it. Granted, the religion basis isn't my genre and that might have had something to do with it. I just felt there were unnecessary parts that added nothing to the plot line. All right, so there you have it, guys. People that think Aint No Messiah sucks. (sighs) But, hey, that's part of it. All right, let's go with the last one. JC. JC, thank you, by the way. JC has left so many incredible reviews. Yeah, super grateful. Thank you so much. This one is another awesome story by Mark Tullius. Poor Joshua he starts life as a stillborn but miraculously starts to breathe his father takes this as a sign that his newborn son is the next messiah and should be raised as such throughout joshua's life he escapes near-death episodes from being hit by a truck having a tree fall on him and even survives an acid incident all things which his father exploits to try to grow his congregations of believers wait until you see how it ends but just don't ask that other lady that hated the ending thank you jc that's super cool Another quick one by Teresa Mott. I just finished this and all I can say is, wow, I loved it. I've had it for a while and I don't know why I didn't read it sooner. I highly recommend it. Wow, what a story. So that's super cool. Thank you guys. Thank you to everyone that left a review. Whether it was more negative, more positive, whatever. I appreciate your take on it. All right, guys. My daughter will be reading chapter four for you shortly. But first... I will read the incorrect scene from last week. So this was the end of chapter three. Here we go. I wonder briefly if he's trying to get me killed, but if I time it just right, I probably could do it. Then again, running toward a ghost with a machine gun could be suicide. It's not like I can dodge bullets. I have no idea if ghost bullets would even do anything to me, but I don't want to stick around and find out. On the other hand, if I turn around and run, he's got a good 15 feet of range to shoot me in the back or run me down before I can make it to cover. What do I do? Did you turn back and follow the others, or did you try to run around the car? Hopefully you turn around and try to find the others and didn't run right at a car. But So let's see what happens if you did that. All right, running straight at a man with a machine gun is utter insanity. I fucking told you. I spin around and sprint, zigzagging to dodge the bullets that I feel are coming. Church right beside me. There's no gunfire, but the Model T's tires burn rubber behind me. I put it in overdrive and fly past all the exhibits and dead bodies. The car's catching up and Church disappears. I glance over my shoulder, see the Model T less than 10 feet from me. The driver's eyes are locked on me, no idea Church just winked into the seat beside him. Church grabs the wheel and I leap to the side of the aisle, praying it will miss me. Brake squeal and it's headed right- The last thing I see before the car sideswipes me is Church staring at the passenger window with a look of disappointment. Awake minutes or seconds later, sounds of screams and tires screeching and objects smashing, fading in and out like on a car radio with bad reception. Everything hurts and I'm afraid to move, afraid to open my eyes. My entire body is in pain. A soft caress on my cheek startles me wide awake. A little pat, 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 but no words. I open my eyes, but my glasses are covered with blood. My right arm's broken, trapped beneath my body, but my left still works. I use my forearm to wipe the lenses, realize I'm not able to move my lower half. The pat-pat-pat on my cheek returns. I turn to it, and the sailor doll's creepy monkey face fills my view. The doll puts its other formless lump of a hand on my other cheek. The expression on its face doesn't change, but somehow I sense it smiling. Church! The soft hands are amazingly strong, pressing my head hard enough I see stars raising it up a good foot from the floor. Stop it! Slam! The glasses shatter, shards embedding in my eye. My mind barely registers the pain. Church! The doll shakes his head no and lifts me up again. Slam! My jaw is broken. Two of my front teeth fall out, following the blood spilling from my mouth and clatter on the floor. Slam! Tears blurring my eyes. I look up to see a figure standing over me. At first, I think it's Church. But when the lips turn down in a pout, I realize it's the mustached hologram we saw near the gates. It's Rex Garrett. He makes a tiss tiss sound as if he's disappointed. I tried to ask him why he's doing this, but the doll cuts my words short, slamming my head into the concrete until my entire world goes black. Slam! 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 All right, the correct choice was to try to run around the car. Duh! All right, should have turned to page twenty. My daughter will read that to you. Now, I did like that scene. Just the idea, I was really creeped out by Duncan's little creepy monkey-faced sailor doll. So I thought it'd be fun for him to, with his soft hands to pick up the head and smash it over and over. So, Emily, I did enjoy that one as well. I'm sure there's other ones that I like way more, but that one was fun. All right, guys, hope you are enjoying it. Thank you so much for listening. Here is chapter four, narrated by my lovely daughter, Olivia Tullius.
1: Despite every instinct to save my own life, I run straight for the car in front of the doors. Just as the driver steps out and spits out his cigar, which land like a wet turd on the polished cement floor. I hadn't noticed Church disappearing from my side, but suddenly he reappears, sitting behind the wheel of the car. The driver levels his machine gun at me, holding it over his left forearm like a waiter pouring wine at a fancy restaurant. This is it. I'm dead. I survived a near collision yesterday, only to get murdered by Al Capone's stunt double today. I want to close my eyes, but seeing as I'm running like the wind, I'd likely trip and fall. Instead, I keep pressing forward, hoping his gun jams, and wondering what the hell Church plans to do behind the wheel. What he does is honk the horn. It makes that loud, gurgling, awoo oh, sound, causing the driver to turn away from me. Church steps on the gas. The car lurches forward, the engine chugging, and the driver chases after Church as the model teal peels off, leaving the way to the doors wide open. I charge straight for them, hitting them so hard with my shoulder it'll probably leave a bruise, but when the sun, fresh air hits me, I don't care. I'm just glad to be out of there, glad to be free. Only I'm not free. It turns out I'm just in another level of hell. People scream and run in all directions, just like inside the visitor center. A teenage boy staggers past me on fire and a woman hangs 20 feet in the air, her hair held by what looks like a cackling skeleton pirate, legless like the ones I saw inside. An orange jumpsuited prisoner bashes his way through the stunned crowd. He tilts his head back and screams at the sky. I run and hide besides a garbage can near the doors. It's all I can think to do. Running away will just make me another target. The boy on fire stumbles into a potato tornado stand, and the flames spread up the side of it. He's smoldering on the ground while the human inferno melts the menu signage and burns the thatched roof. The ground shakes with enormous boom as the propane tank in the chip stand explodes. I shade my eyes against the white fire brighter than the sun. It's maybe 30 feet away from me, but the heat from it's practically roasting me, like a bad sunburn. When I risk opening my eyes again, it's still chaos. People have ducked for cover, and the woman hanging by her hair kicks and screams as the pirate carries her away. Where the hell is church? More importantly, where are Gabby and Eli and Jordan? Have they escaped? Are they still somewhere inside Legion House? Or are they already dead? My heart hurts. My skin hurts. I can't take these screams anymore. The smell of that kid burning and the grease from the potato stand is making me nauseous and sickeningly hungry. Shadows descend over me, blocking out the sun. I'm paralyzed with fear, certain it's the zombie prisoner I saw in the crowd, until I remember ghosts not cast shadows. I look up at the two men who stopped right in front of me, both of them peering around frantically. The older one with wavy silver hair and sandals with sport socks pulled up to his calves, looks down, and sees me. Oh my god, Damien, he says, his brown eyes going wide do you look at this poor girl? The younger guy, Damien, I guess, notices me, and his blue eyes fill with pity. He holds out a hand. Come with us, Damien says. He's Hollywood good-looking. Coiffed hair, perfect tan, white teeth, toned under his too-small t-shirt. I shake my head. I just want to stay hidden until church gets back, but these two are ruining my hiding spot. You have to come with us, the older man says, looking at Damien takes the silver-haired man's hand with the one he's not holding out to me. I know they're trying to tell me without telling me that they're a couple, that I'll be safe with them. We can protect you, Damien says, looking very near panic. You'll die out here on your own. Is he right? Should I go with them? It probably wouldn't hurt to have other people around. But I need to wait for Church. He's helped me this far. I'd be dead already if not for him. I would have died yesterday. A miserable thought cursed me, that if I'd been hit by the car, I wouldn't have to endure this massacre. I'm waiting for someone, to tell them. The silver-haired man looks annoyed. We'll help you find them. Without waiting for my reply, he grabs me by the shoulder and yanks me up. I stumble forward and Damien catches me in his arms. I must look like a scared puppy because he hugs me and pats my back. It's going to be okay, he says. No, it's not. I stomp down hard on Damien's right foot. He yelps and lets me go, and I take my chance to run. We're only trying to help, the silver-haired man shouts. I don't need your help, I call back, already ten feet away and further by the second. A blood-curdling scream stops me next to the burning potato stand, the stink of grease and charred human flesh prickling my nostrils, making me gag. Scorchy the Clown, the one I saw in the visitor center that kinda looks like Freddy Krueger in polka dots, Holds his mallet in full swing like a golfer watching his shot rocket. Oh, holds his mallet in full swing like a golfer watching his shot rocket. Damien's still screaming, and when I see why, I almost join him. His silver-haired partner has been decapitated. The severed head rolls towards me as the older man's headless body crumples at the knees and falls towards the ground. You bastard, Damien shouts, grabbing at the gore-streaked head of the mallet. They fight over it, but the clown doesn't seem too bothered. His blink-white eyes watch the severed head roll to a stop by the burning kid. The silver hair catches fire and burns with an awful smell. Run, you idiot, I will to Damien, too scared to say it out loud. But Damien, the action star, still thinks he can fight his way out of this. They thought they could save me, but they couldn't even save themselves. Or maybe they would have if I hadn't rejected them. Maybe we would have gotten away in time. Too late to change my mind now, with the elderly man's head in overcooked marshmallow next to a pile of charred flesh and bone that was only minutes ago a teenage boy with his whole life ahead of him. Damien grabs the mallet with both hands and pulls, which finally attracts Scorchy's attention. The ghost regards him without expression, then simply lets go of the handle. Pulling the old prank, Damien was too scared out of his mind to expect. The mallet smashes into his face and he falls flat to his back. Scorchy points at the prone man, his gloved hand looking like the Arby's mascot got too close to the oven, and throws back his head with a horrible, gurgling laugh. He bends to pick up the discarded mallet, regards it a moment, then rests it over his shoulder and chooses instead to stomp down hard with one oversized red shoe, squashing Damien's movie star face like a grape. A little squeak of terror escapes me. I slam a hand over my mouth, but it's too late. Scorchy's head whips around at an impossible angle, his milky white eyes staring straight at me. With a vain hope that Church will come and find me, I dash back the way we came, around the side of the visitor center towards the gates, where I know there's a security station and probably one or two of those school guards who checked our bags and purses on the way in. Speaking of which, I must have lost mine somewhere between the hiding of the closet and running, meaning I lost all of the money I brought with me and my phone. Not that either would have much purpose since my phone lost service the second we stepped through the gate. Ghostland seems to be a literal dead zone. Still, I haven't been anywhere without my phone since I don't remember the last time, and it feels wrong to be without it. A screech from above startles me, and I duck just in time as a skeletal ghost, Wearing an eye patch and with a tattered clothes that flap like wings, shoots over my head. I can't tell if it's the same pirate who dragged that woman away, but I hide behind the ghost-your-selfie booth to wrap my ponytail into a tight bun at the nape of my neck, giving them less chances to grab me. We were just here a half an hour ago, ghosting our own selfies. The app said it would email gifts of us turning to ghosts and back, but they also showed them on screen above the booth. We laughed over Gabby's ghost looking like a prim and proper character from a Jane Austen novel. Jordan's looked like a stoner slacker from the 70s, which was actually pretty fitting. Eli's wore a ghostly football helmet, which I guess was because he was wearing his Letterman jacket. And mine. Mine didn't change at all, except for a dark ghostly smear over my shoulder that Gabby pointed out almost looked like a creepy face. Jordan thought that maybe the AI messed up where my own face was and put my ghost over my shoulder. He knows a lot about computer stuff, so he was probably right. And in all the chaos, I totally forgot all about that until just now. If the algorithm or whatever saw another face, like Church's for instance, it's possible it might have messed up the image. But Church said he got stopped at the gates and wasn't able to get into the park until the power blipped. So what the heck was that ghostly smear over my shoulder? Whatever it was, it makes me wish I'd taken a closer look at it while I still had my phone. I can't remember if it really did look like a face, or if it only looked like it to the rest of us after Gabby pointed it out. Either way, I did think it was weird enough to snap a pic of it before we left the boots. I get running again, thinking of this. My thoughts are the clearest when I'm running. Always have been. I realize the screams have died down, and I haven't seen a ghost since the pirate I ducked from as I left the Visitor Center. It's eerily quiet. I can already see the security station from here, and the front gates aren't too much further. But the Visitor Center isn't all that far behind me, either. I'm barely winded. I could probably make my way back to Legion House just as quickly as it would take to reach the gates. It might be difficult to find wherever I dropped my phone, But if my friends are still alive, even if cell service is out, maybe I can use the GPS tracking app that Gabby and I put on our phones to find them. If Church was lying about not being able to get through the gate with us, I need to know why. If it wasn't Church, I might be in more trouble here than I thought. (laughs) Time for a decision. You can go back and look for the phone, or you can head for the front gates.